I've encountered a lot of younger men, in particular, uh, who in some respects are just clueless. If you'll pardon the vulgarity, they couldn't get their shit together. Fifteen years of smoking weed and playing video games and jerking off to porn have not been the best preparation for life. There's just something about orthodoxy that appeals to men. I think it's the structure. I think some guys are just coming because they're sick and tired of chaos. Um, a lot of what I'm seeing in the young men is a genuine desire to grow up. They really want to give something substantive and meaningful to the rest of the world around them. And then oddly enough, they actually find a wife you know, after they've been looking for years. So, you know, when they finally grow up and become adults, wow, a woman actually wants to take a second look at them. Who knew? Stop waiting. Go for it. Failure is bitter, but regret is 10 times worse. I, I, I could have conversations like this all day long and never grow tired of it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Wayshowers podcast episode, the podcast where we speak with visionary leaders from the whole world on the future of men and masculinity. Today, I have the great privilege to introduce you to Father Michael Butler. Michael is an Orthodox priest. He is a mentor for young boys, a men's coach, and also a bodybuilder. So a very unique man. And this was a very inspired conversation about his work with the young men who are coming in the hundreds to the Orthodox Church in the United States. What are they seeking? What are they finding? We will also hear about Michael's vision for the future of men and masculinity and what he enjoys about being a man. So without further ado, let's just dive in. Welcome back to another episode of the Way Showers podcast. Today I have the great honor to have Father Michael Butler with me here. And you are something as unique as a bodybuilding Orthodox church elder. I'm not quite an elder. In, in our tradition, that has a very special meaning that's laden with respect and holiness. Ah. I'm just an old priest. Right. And, uh, are you on the path to becoming an elder or is that something like being a pope or something like that? No, that's, that's very much a charismatic office. And, uh, I see. I'm not holy enough to be a, an elder. I, I don't pretend to be one. I don't play one on TV. Uh, so you're but, a bodybuilding uh, Orthodox church. I'm just a priest. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I do that. I yeah. do a bit of men's work. Yes. And uh, yeah, I have my finger in a number of different pots. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably a little bit out of the mainstream and that's okay. I think that's why you're here today. That's why I want you to be part of this conversation, because, of mm -hmm. course, this podcast is about talking with visionary leaders in the space of men and masculinity around the world, because, and I think you would agree with me on this, we, we need to find some answers as to where we're going, because men in our culture, we're not really it anymore. It seems like our time has sort of culturally speaking been been passed and we're in some new era of i don't know the woman or equality or diversity or whatever and i guess a lot of men are wondering who are they in this day and age i don't know if you resonate with that description uh yeah i do resonate with it and uh 
you know, the old moorings have been lost. Yes. And there's, there's a great deal of talk now of men needing to redefine themselves. Um, I never really liked redefining mm. uh, masculinity. I never liked redefining femininity either, for that matter. Mm. Uh, every time someone came along and redefined men or women, we seemed to get worse. Um, and so uh, my approach, consistent with sort of the rather conservative church that I belong to, has been to look back at what has always worked uh, traditionally and the things that seem to be hardwired into us, mm. uh, particularly as men, uh, by way of natural law and natural endowment and physical endowments and those sorts of things, and to use those as guides to what it is that, that makes us optimally men and to use those things in ways that are not only benefit ourselves uh, but certainly are beneficial uh, to the people who are around us because the most mature masculinity is certainly not self-serving it's given in service i mean the, the the way that i formulate it well is that first of all my masculinity is a gift to me from god for which i need to be grateful but it is not given to me for myself it is given to me so that i can then use it gratefully and generously in service to everyone else around me mm. be that my family my business in my case my congregation uh but wherever it is that i happen to have influence and to use those gifts for the benefit of others and i found it to be uh, it to work in my own life and i found that it seems to make not only my life meaningful and better but it improves the lives of everybody else around me and it seems not to stir up very much controversy so I think I'm on to something. Very good. Yeah, I was just watching one of your presentations at Ryan Mickler's event up at his barn in, I don't know, Maine or something. Maine, yes, in the Maine. state of Maine. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you've been quite close to, to his organization, yes. Order of Man. Is, is that your way into men's work or have you been involved with men's work for longer than that? Um, I joined... Um, uh, um, a, a paid online uh, subscription group within the Order of Man that's called the Iron Council. I see. Uh, where I have paid access mm -hmm. uh, to a, a, they have closed groups. Uh, it's a large organization now, 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 men belong to this. And uh, we have groups, you know, small groups of 15. We have larger groups. We have uh, groups devoted to various interests and all. Uh, we work on 90-day goals routinely. In fact, we have just begun second quarter of this year, so everybody has just rewritten all of their quarterly goals for the second quarter. Mm -hmm. There's a huge amount of accountability mm -hmm. uh, and a huge amount of mutual support. Uh, honestly, to give to, to, to give a, a plug, it's one of the, the best groups I have ever belonged to in my life. Right. And I've never met an, a better group of men who were willing to give their time and their expertise immediately and freely to anybody who asked. So it functions very much like a mastermind. You have a question, you just put it out there and the answers just pour in. Uh, but that's only been about the last three years, a little over three years that I've been with that. Uh, my interest in men's work goes back over 30 years. Um, in fact, probably even longer than that. Uh, I lost my dad when I was eight years old. I am 62 now. Mm -hmm. um, and I grew up with a stepfather with whom I was not particularly close. And I had always wondered, you know, what it was to be a man. I didn't really feel comfortable in my own skin. 
I was the fat kid who was always picked last, you mm -hmm. know, in, for sports and all of that. So it's very uncomfortable in my body, very awkward, socially uh, inept for a lot of years. Actually, I think I was depressed through most of my childhood. Wow. Uh, and then even when I got into college, I majored in psychology to see if I could figure myself out. Because as they say, in all research, there is me-search. <laughs> so I tried to find myself, and I, I sort of worked on, on post-adolescent male identity uh, as an undergraduate. And then I discovered my, my psychology program uh, at the time was um, archetypal, based on Jung. James Hillman was my department chair, so we did a lot of work in our. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And so that was where I got where my was start. that? That was at University of Dallas. Dallas. Um, in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm. Um, and uh, so that's where I, I kind of got my start in, in, in interest in archetypes, especially. And then I just continued on. Um, I began looking around for, for what eventually became known as men's work, even before Robert Bly published Iron John, I was hearing echoes. There's something going on in California out, you know, some old poet shaking things down in the woods, you know, drumming and telling stories and this sort of stuff. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. And there was, I couldn't find any information. So, you know, there was, there were no interwebs in those days. So I, I looked where I could. And eventually as the mythopoeic men's movement uh, got underway, you know, I, I read everything by them i knew all of the all of the names i listened to what recordings i could uh and eventually as i you know became a little more mobile and there were more and more opportunities to participate in things i eventually began to do that uh so i did some work with the mythopoeic men's movement uh particularly in christian men's circles uh father richard Rohr, a catholic Franciscan. oh yeah i like him yeah his men's work is really very good and i attended his men's rites of passage in upstate new york uh, when John Eldridge, the evangelical Protestant, published Wild at Heart, right. I went out. I think I was the third uh, retreat that he did out in uh, the mountains in Colorado, so I attended his thing, uh, and that just sort of started me off. So this and is just then, a list of the OGs. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Kind of, yeah, I sort of knew them. I'm old enough yeah. to have kind of come across all of them. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so I've sort of been had my fingers in all of this for a very long time, and then about, gosh, what was it, 14 or 15 years ago, uh, I was in a period of very severe burnout uh, mm -hmm. in my last parish and a very difficult time in my life. I basically had a panic attack or an anxiety attack mm -hmm. uh, and got taken to the emergency room, have, you know, strapped down, you know, to a board, uh, hyperventilating and crying hysterically. Wow. Um, and I was assigned, yeah, I was a mental case. So, you know, the, uh, the sweet young thing who came with her clipboard said, I know who you need and you need this particular therapist who was my, uh, supervising therapist when she was going through school. And it turned out to be this crusty old hard nosed, uh, psychologist who grew up on, in the South side of Chicago, which for those of you in, in, in America, the South side of Chicago is known. This is a very tough bad neighborhood of gangs and you know depressed living and everything else so was it robin moore uh, no it wasn't robert moore no actually okay. no it wasn't robert moore is is ah. uh francis j matisse i'll give him a, a shout okay. out okay yeah, because robert moore was also based in chicago yeah he is in chicago but in a much nicer neighborhood right <laughs> yeah, yeah the south side is a really rough part of town mm -hmm. so at any rate but he basically knocked me into shape 
very quickly, gave, you know, didn't allow me any wiggle room and just basically pummeled me, you know, mm -hmm. into where I needed to be. And I dearly loved him for it. And that began a quest to, okay, now I see I've made some mistakes in my life. I don't know what I'm doing wrong here. And it really started me on a path of self-development. I didn't have much resource. I didn't know quite where to go. I, I went back to my men's work. I reread everything. That was a huge help. I started finding other men's development, personal development, self-development work. A lot of business books were starting to come out at that time. So you're beginning to see, um, I can't remember who was out in those days, but you know, you could name all of the popular ones now. I've read them all. Uh, Tim Ferriss, Jocko Willink, uh, um, you know, um, I, the, the names escape me at the moment. But I started really working on myself. And then I, I discovered uh, uh, Robert Glover's No More Mr. Nice Guy. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I discovered I was eat up with covert contracts and a bunch of uh, recovering nice guy here. So um, I had to uh, I had to do some work there. And finally, I realized if I'm going to do the work, I have to take Glover's advice and not try to do it on my own. Mm. So I found myself a local therapist who was qualified, who had been who had been trained by Glover in nice guy syndrome. As it were, so I went and saw him. I ended up in a year-long men's therapy group for recovering nice guys, right. and it did me a world of good. It really did. Uh, but at the end of about the end of about a year, they went off to do something else, and I said, you know, I've been with a therapy group, and in a therapy group, everybody is, thinks that they're sort of down one and are trying to get back to to sort of normal. Mm. I wonder what would happen, you know, if I got to a group of normal guys who were trying to get ahead. Yes. And that's when I found the Order of Man and the Iron Council. I joined that, and that really accelerated, you know, my self improvement, and right. really put me on a path to some substantial personal growth. And it's mm -hmm. been out of that that I've reached an age now, um, where I say I I really need to give back. And as I am closer to the tomb than to the womb, I've encountered a lot of, excuse me, younger men in particular, uh, who in some respects are just clueless about what to do. Uh, they begin coming to the church. A uh, lot of young men, single young men from about college age 22 to about 32, have begun coming to the Orthodox Church. They're coming by the hundreds in America now. They're looking for, you know, a, a, a substantive religious faith. They're looking for structure. And we have a huge amount of structure. So they're looking for structure. They're, you know, since you're familiar with, with archetypes, they're looking for the archetype of, of initiation. They need a safe, structured container and a ritual elder who knows what's going on and can help them with that. And a lot of times the young men didn't just need religious instruction. There was something else that was going on. They, if you'll pardon the vulgarity, they couldn't get their shit together. You know, somehow they, they had managed successfully to launch into life, but somehow it wasn't optimal, that there was something missing. And what I found was they seemed to be stuck somewhere between late adolescence and early adulthood. And there's like a bump in the road there that they were just not able to get past. And they needed help growing up. And that's what I found. Okay, these, these young men coming, they not only are looking for Christ in his church, so there's religious instruction and formation to be done, but there's life formation in what it means to be a man. Mm -hmm. And the way I've been, been formulating it is the church does a pretty good job 
of helping men to be good men. But the church is not doing a good job at helping men to be good at being men yeah. in the first place. Yeah. You know, and that's Jack Donovan's famous distinction between being a good man and good at being a man. Mm. And they really needed help on that more foundational level. And so it was trying to get them be good men or good at being men that I began working on the, the ancient classical virtues of prudence, you know, moderation, courage, and justice as ways of getting them a foundation on which to be good at being men so that they could then build Christian virtue on top of it. Right. And it seems to have legs. It seems to have traction. Uh, the young men are, are taking to it. It seems to make sense to them. And it's helping them to kind of grow up. Mm. So and you are it, using then f millennia old virtues, masculine virtues, oh yeah. to oh yeah. mentor 20. Oh, yeah. This is all. Yeah. yeah, this is, I, I'm not innovating anything here. I mean, this is, this was all, you know, in ancient Greco-Roman culture and philosophy, most of which was taken up entirely in the early Christian church. Mm -hmm. So I am mining my own Christian tradition in order to find resources Excellent. to be pertinent to, you know, uh, contemporary men's issues. And is, it, it's kind of fun. Is there anything particular about the, these four that you find to be especially potent or is it just that it's one framework that gives them the structure and the okay yeah the um uh, i like it because it because i'm grossly overeducated and i have a phd in church history and patristics so i, I studied early centuries and i i just revel in that stuff uh, but it's also very traditional, classical Western European language that's mm -hmm. been around for centuries. So a lot of people kind of understand it. Also, at least in America, Stoicism has uh, risen a little more in prominence in the last few years, mm -hmm. uh, mostly due to the work of Ryan Holiday. So there are a lot of young men who have gone back to reading their Marcus Aurelius, their Epictetus, their Cicero, and all of that. So it resonates with them as well. And what I discovered from years of doing archetypal and neo-Jungian psychology yes. is that the four classical virtues line up exactly with Robert Moore's four principal male archetypes. Take us through that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, courage is basically warrior archetype. Mm. Um, magician archetype is uh, prudence. Prudence, yes. Because prudence is the application of of generic wisdom to specific you know, situations on which I have to act right now. So mm. this is the application of knowledge. You know, this is technical skill, you know, and ultimately this is adding value to the world. Yeah. Uh, moderation has to do with love or energy because that has to do with eros and desire. Okay. So moderation is, tell, tell me more. From moderation for me sounds like the opposite of excess. So, and the love or energy is like desire and the shadow yeah. of it obviously is to, to, really stuff yourself with sens oh, yeah. sensory stimulation. So tell yeah, me more exactly. about how moderation relates to to the lover archetype. All right. Um, yeah, as you said, in, in, in lover archetype, particularly for men, yes. uh, since that's what, what we're most familiar with and, and working with here, uh, Moore calls it the universal solvent, and it tends to dissolve a lot of things. And I remember it comes online. It's basically a man's midlife crisis. And I remember when it hit me, uh, in my forties and like my emotional range 
like broadened out. You know, my, my, my happies were a lot happier. My sads were much sadder. Uh, I would listen to music and just burst into tears. You know, and I would, I would do it to myself. I would intentionally listen to stuff that would bring me to Although tears. Although you would deliberately, like, deliberately your emotions in this yeah, time do this life. because, my God, I could feel like I had this emotional depth that I never had access wow. to before. It felt, it felt so damn good to, have, to, mm. to be able to feel. Okay. Mm. But like you say, it can go to excess. Yes. And so, I mean, it, it, even in, in classical culture, you know, even in, in Aristotle, he defined virtue as, you know, uh, the Greeks called it mizonariston, moderation is best. So, so virtue is the middle point between two extremes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we don't want excessive desire, you know, which is galloping promiscuity or, or you know, stuffing ourselves with food or whatnot, but neither do we want to be cold or frigid or, or completely unfeeling. And so an appropriate and moderate appropriation and a conscious um uh accessing of the warrior archetype rather than letting it run off with us when we can incorporate that into you know with some our own ego control really adds genuine depth and feeling uh and an appropriate level of desire to our lives that we otherwise might not might not experience and moderation is the conscious engagement with this really like alive desire abundance kind of energy that we call the lover archetype thank you you put it much better than i do yes yes that's it so it doesn't mean you know clamping down on it or putting a lid on it no it you can't do that you end up with problems when you put a lid on it but we Mm. need to channel it yes and it needs to be directed i see okay and not allow it just to go wild and to take over and then the last archetype for justice this is the king. Our, our, our justice is the last virtue, corresponds to the king archetype, because justice has to do with our relationships with other people. And the king archetype has to do with generativity and uh, the bestowing of gifts, the recognition of others, the lifting up of others, the, mm-hmm. the, the managing of one's realm, whatever that may be. It be family, your department at work whatever community you may you may be living in and so i think there's a real clear there's a real clear lineup i can see that uh, between between moore's archetypes and the ancient classical virtues so uh, i just thought yeah I, i do a lot of work with moore's archetypes but i thought the classical virtues might have a broader uh resonance a broader acceptance uh, and I guess the roots of these concepts go further back into history and thus have a, a different kind of resonance in us as well. Even though we may not even be aware of them, I think the way that these things work is is that there are these, that our cultures have deep resonance chambers far back into time and then we activate them. Even to the, today, we can, we can somehow feel like there is a homecoming, you know, because... Yeah. Truth be told, I haven't really studied Western philosophy that much because in my early years, I I got deep into Eastern philosophy and Buddhism, and you know, this has been very hip, of course, for for many decades to to flee the West and go East. Yeah, and and I think and you seem to be suggesting that from what you just said about hundreds, I don't maybe even thousands of young American men coming your way that there is a revival of classical western philosophy and culture 
There is in some circles. Uh-huh. I think in other respects, uh, where they're maybe not so much conscious of a revival of of of, philo- of Western philosophy or most Western cultural ideas, I think some guys are just coming because they're sick and tired of chaos yeah. and anxiety and rootlessness uh, that's just surrounding them, and they're looking for someplace solid to stand. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially those who come who are coming to us in the church are also looking for some kind of a transcendent ideal to which they can give their their lives. They need something bigger to live for. This is so important for us, man. And, you know, whatever they're finding. And you know, I've, I've said this to a number of them, and they get real uncomfortable when I say it. But I said, so what you're telling me is that 15 years of smoking weed and playing video games and jerking off to porn have not been the best preparation for life? They say, Gee, Father, you, you have to hit so close. But that's <laughs> it. You know, for a lot of guys, that's how they spent the last 15 or 20 years of their life. And it's not a real good preparation for everything else that's coming later. Mm-hmm. You know, so they come, they know they need to grow up. They knew, know they need to step into a, a more adult life, a more mature uh, masculinity. They know where it is, but they have no idea how to access it. Mm-hmm. And they know they need to be there, and they know they need to live for something more than their immediate pleasure. And there's got to be something structured out there that can take care of the chaos uh, in the world that they're living in. And yeah. they, they just they, they they want to be calm and centered, and they want to give honestly. They really want to give something substantive and meaningful to the rest of the world around them. Mm. They really do. They want to give, and they they're just not sure how. And so that's that level. I mean, you know, I can, you know, as a priest, I work on the religious level, the spiritual yeah. level, but this is deeper than that in some respects, or more foundational. And so I found I've needed to to work with these guys on a more foundational level. Otherwise, the spiritual edifice has no foundation and it won't be firm. So this has really broadened out, you know, what has been it started for me as pastoral ministry in my church to a much broader consideration of what younger men are going through and to begin trying to offer uh, some way of, you know, of helping them through that. Do you feel like this work has found you or did you find it? That's a real good question. I, we, we may have found each other. Uh-huh. Uh, I certainly didn't ask for these young men to start showing up. They started showing mm. up about five years ago. This was even before the COVID lockdown. We had a whole group, about 12 of them show up in like just a few months time. Everybody's like, who are these guys and where they come from? You know, and then the next question was, well, where are all the women? Because now we have a bunch of young men who are ready to settle down and and get married and start their families and there are no women. Is that still the case? Is it mainly young men? Yeah, after the COVID lockdown, we had another huge influx of of more young men, probably 18 or 20, uh, and very few women. It's there. There's I. I have no real explanation for it. Other churches I know, other Orthodox churches even have experienced more influxes of women. But for some reason, I don't know if it's my personality or just the the you know the society in, in, in geographically around where I am uh, here in right. uh, suburban Detroit that's that's drawing young men here. I, I really don't know what it is. But very typically. Um, Orthodox conversion tends to be tends, tends to be male led. So even if there are families that come to the church, 
it's the husband and father that are bringing them. It's rarely the mother. Mm. There's just something about orthodoxy that appeals to men. I think it's the structure. I think it's very clear definition of truth. I think it's the ascetical discipline that's almost military in some respects you know, that, uh, that they're looking for. And also in orthodoxy, like, you know, like I, I cautioned you at the very beginning of our interview, you know, we just said, are you a kind of elder? No, that's a very specific title in orthodox thought. But the young men, are, they are looking for dad 2.0. Mm-hmm. I think they are genuinely looking for a mature, masculine, fatherly figure who can help them to grow up and to yeah. whom they can, with whom they can have a genuine relationship. And that is very important in orthodoxy. You know, the, the, the sort of the very personal element. And so yeah. I think that they're finding that at least the ones that are coming to our church. Right. So let's play devil's advocate for just a moment. Okay. Yeah. I think that's fun personally. So the Orthodox church obviously is very loyal to um, some ancient ideals ancient Western oh, yeah. ideals. Mm-hmm. And here we are in a conversation about the way forwards for us as mm-hmm. men and masculinity and masculinity and in the culture at large to look back 2000 years to gender roles and how things were seen back then wouldn't really be the answer we're looking for. So here there's something happening. There's this Orthodox Christianity that is calling men back. And given that this is this is this ancient tradition and that, yeah, there are probably many women out there that feel that this church is not very aligned with feminist values and things like that. How how can how can you envision the orthodoxy of of the Orthodox Church as part of a way forwards for us as men? Okay, Uh, first, I'll, I'll point I'll mention this qualification. Um, it's not just the Orthodox Church that's seeing this influx of young people. The Roman Catholic Church is experiencing it too, Mm -hmm. particularly the more traditional, Mm. observant, Orthodox or Catholic parishes. Uh, And the traditional, the more traditional, observant uh, Roman Catholic religious orders, like the Carmelites or the Benedictines, you know, those religious houses like that, the more traditional they are, they can't build rooms enough to accommodate all of the people who want to come and join the religious orders. But so do they want to live there as uh, as monks and nuns? As or? monks and nuns, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and this is one of these. We have, they are quite well represented in Norway, actually. We have this two Cistercian monasteries. Oh, you have Cistercian. It's a branch yeah. of the Benedictine order, obviously. Yeah. And I spent yeah. time in both of them in, I think it was the summer of 2020. They're beautiful. Okay. They so, are. I, I, I studied with Cistercians. Uh, I see. Both my undergraduate and my graduate was. I, I love them dearly. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. have four four French dudes. I don't know how this works exactly, but for some reason, four French men end up in the middle of the Norwegian woods, and that there they make cheese. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you have to support yourself somehow. Yes. Um, That's yeah. part of the Benedictine. Yeah, doctrine. Oh, I guess. Labore et orare, work and prayer. Yeah, yes. for the Benedictines, that's that's it. 
Yes. Sorry, I interrupted you. Let's go back to all these rooms that are being built. Yeah, it's all right. But I mean, it's traditional Catholicism is attracting huge numbers of young people as well. And even I've I've come to find out of very conservative branches of reformed Calvinist Christianity Mm. uh, also are, are attracting people. The more liberal, the more mainstream, the more hipster kind of contemporary evangelical churches, they have a certain appeal, but I, I think it's waning and sort of the more traditional and, and grounded uh, expressions That's of right. Christianity are the ones that are growing. And I think it you know, just the easy answer is it's, you know, I think people are, are, are fundamentally tired of trying to define their own identity. You know, they can find it in something that is traditional and structured already. And that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, at least the more traditional expressions of the Christian faith are grounded in natural law and are consistent with sort of the grand, you know, the, the design of the universe. Um, it takes only a fundamentalist who can't appreciate that the same God who created the laws of nature and the laws of physics is also the one who wrote the scripture. And it's the same one who was incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. So ultimately there is no contradiction between science and, and faith. You know, yeah. it, it, it's the same truth that informs it. So, you know, I don't have to speak in clear religious terms. I can talk about natural law. I can talk about, you know, sort of the, the natural order, you know, of, of the universe. Why are men bigger than women? You know, okay, because we have a particular role, you know, in society and we do have social roles. You know, uh, families are fundamental units. Why? Because children cannot defend themselves and somebody needs to go out and bring home food while mama is laid up nursing and raising small children. I mean, these are realities that are hard baked into human life. You know, and nowadays we get the state to step in and take care of those roles, but the roles are still there. You know, we do not survive. You know, if we don't have people who can take care of mama and baby, you know, you know, while they're young and defenseless. Okay. So, you know, we can talk about very natural things like this that should make common sense to anybody. You know, and they are still consistent with more traditional masculinity and feminine roles. I think they still have a place to play and sort of long winded and circle around to how do we carry all of this forward? Um, I am not in any ways a traditionalist. I'm very traditional in my beliefs and all, but there's a difference between someone who's traditional and a traditionalist. Uh, I think uh, someone once put it, a tra- a traditionalism is the, what is the dead faith of the living, you know, or something that's basically, you know, it's basically just clinging to old forms to cling to old forms. No, no, we need to bring the best that is in our tradition forward and find a way for it to have an expression and a value today. Because there's something, the reason that it's in the tradition is because it has been speaking to human beings for millennia, mm-hmm. okay? That there's something fundamentally true there. Uh, just like there's something fundamentally true in archetypes that are that are true across cultures and across time, that you know they're universally applicable, and so there are fundamental aspects of human being that I think are you know, are there. And when we lose that, or we pretend that it doesn't matter, that DNA doesn't matter, that gender doesn't matter, that we can identify create whatever identity that we want, it you know we enter the realms of the ridiculous uh, and the ludicrous. It just does not work. You know, reality is staring us in the face. And I think some people are beginning to react a little bit and say, no, we've gone a little too far that way. Uh, So I begin to see a little bit of the pendulum swinging back uh, the other way. Yeah, and so like a counter reaction on some level that, 
Well, some reactions is a counter reaction, yeah. And yeah. you know, you always have the extremes on both sides that are always shooting at each other because yeah. you know that's how they get their jollies. That that's not what I'm I'm talking about here. I'm talking about there are there are things that are fundamentally true, like archetypally true, psychologically mm. true, mm. that we need to maintain because they're part of what makes us human. And humans function optimally individually and as small groups and families and as a broader society when these things are recognized and respected. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think we, we muddle our way through. And I'm never an advocate to, to looking back to say, oh, the ideal society was what, 19th century Russia or 16th century England or 7th century Byzantium. No, it's not. That's not our world anymore. But they did have some truth and they had some insight. If it's useful, let's use it and let's carry it forward. You know, what, who was it said? You know, the, uh, the wise man learns from the mistakes of others. You know, so we can learn from the little something from history that, you know, the, the normal man learns from his own mistakes. Right. And the fool never learns. Mm. So, you know, I would rather that say, okay, look, we figured out some of these things. So let's, let's not reinvent the wheel every generation and start everybody at square one. And let's see if we can make some progress and make our lives better and enhance the world that to where people can live, you know, more fruitful lives, um, uh, see some genuine flourishing and add genuine value to the people around ourselves. Mm. Um, and I think it happens. We, we've been shown the way how, and mm. to the degree that we've forgotten or moved away from it, we'll move back because it works best for everybody. Mm. That's, I think that's it. So, you know, I don't have a grand program for that. We need to do these five things in order to do it. Uh, I think we, you know, quit hitting our head against the wall and we say, okay, that hurts and it's not doing me any good. I think so you're making the argument that there's something in this belief or form of spirituality or this cultural expression that is just simply natural. Yeah. And that once we are on the other side of whatever we're trying to figure out as a culture and as a society right now, nature will reassert itself. That's what I think you're saying. Yeah, it will. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately you, you, you can't ultimately fight it. Yeah. And, you know, if that means, you know, and it, I, I know not everyone likes to hear it, but I don't think we're quite as free as we like to pretend that we are. You know, no, I'm absolutely free. I have absolute autonomy to define who I am or define my identity or to be who or whatever I want. Well, no, little things actually kind of limit that. You know, I mean, little things, birth order, you know, firstborns do, you know, behave in one way, secondborns behave other ways. The youngest child in a family has a rather different experience of life. You know, the, you, you are fluent in, you know, <laughs> You're fluent in more than one language. I'm an American. I speak English. You know. But, you know, there are things, there's you're, an old joke. You're fluent in the language of God. There we are. I, I hope to. From your lips to God's, to God's ears, I hope to. You know, but, you know, there are there are things that you can say in Swedish that, that make sense that you, that you have to I'm Norwegian. To Don't call me Swedish. Oh, forgive me, Norwegian. I live, in, I live in Sweden, but I'm Norwegian. You live in Sweden, but you're Norwegian. Yeah. Forgive me. That's okay. I know. To yeah. my ear, you all sound the same, but uh, <laughs> That's because you're American, my friend. Because <laughs> I'm an American, and I'm a dumb American, and I, I get that. But there are things that you can say in Norwegian yeah. that don't make sense in English that you have to explain. Yeah. And there are things you can say in English that are absolutely hysterical. That mm. it's not funny at all in Norwegian. Mm. You know, so even language limits our ability 
to be absolutely free. Socioeconomic status. Were you raised affluently or were you raised in poverty? That's going to determine you know, how much you know, access you have to the world and how free you are to express yourself or to, or, or to have experiences. There are a lot of things that limit our freedom that we don't often like to think about. And one of the things, I, I'm glad you bring this up, and I would like to add one, one additional thing is that we are born into or invited into or even indoctrinated into worldviews, like narratives about yes. who we are and what we belong to and where we come mm -hmm. from and all of these things. And you can actually be indoctrinated by a false worldview and think oh, yeah. you're free, but you're actually an imprisoner. You're a prisoner of the distortion. You're a prisoner yes. of the lie. Yes. And um, um, world events of the last few years yes. um, have really brought that home to me. Mm -hmm. And what it made me do, and I, I, I don't think I'm better or wiser than anyone else, is when I have caught some people in what I believe is a purely ideological stance. Yeah. Rather than to be critical, it makes me sit back and wonder and say, oh, I disagree with that. What have I been indoctrinated into? Have, have I freely chosen my own views? Or am I being led by the nose by people whom I hold in respect and esteem? And to what degree am I not free? And it's really caused a great deal of soul searching for me. For me um, too. And I, you know, I, I don't quite know the answer to that, except, you know, to maybe to, to hold even our own opinions very lightly and be willing to be educated and be willing to have difficult conversations sometimes. Um, you know, like, um, you can't have conversations and comment boxes on social media. You know, everybody just, you know, insults each other. They hear one thing they don't like. And, you know, it's just, it's a dumpster fire. Yeah. But I've had opportunities and uh, uh, where, where there are good groups of people where you can, you know, disagree without being disagreeable. The kind of good, solid conversations that used to be quite normal. And that didn't say, oh, I cannot be your friend anymore because you support X, Y, and Z. You know, and we're, they, we were not so so fragile, uh, and so I've been able to have some more of those conversations. They've been absolutely wonderful with people with whom I, I vehemently disagree on some things, but I learn something, and they learn something, and we're still friends at the end. That's and cool. I think we're both. I think we're both better. That's not a given that. anymore. No, no, it's, that no that kind of that kind of relationship is not a given. Yeah. Uh, but I value them, you know, very highly. Uh, uh, because of that, yeah, you know, that, yeah, we, we no, we don't have to agree on everything, but I can still respect you, you know, and I can, you know, if I can at least present my view to where you can say, okay, I disagree with you completely, but I can see how a reasonable person could come to that conclusion. Mm. I'm happy with that, mm. you know. So it's no, nah, you're just a crook, you're just a fool, you're just an idiot, you're just one of those, you know. That that's 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 no argument there. And you haven't been heard, and you know not, nothing substantive has, has, has taken place there. I have a massive curiosity triggered as you speak right now, because I'm sat here with Father Michael Butler. You're you're a, you call it a priest as well, I guess, in mm -hmm. the Orthodox Church. Mm -hmm. 
And um, there is a there is a chasm that divides our culture presently. So we have we have polarities that are so far apart, and that can't seem to view the other side, so to speak, as anything but evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter if what is being revealed about my side, which is bad, uh, whether it's objectively true or not, isn't relevant, it seems like, in this extreme polarization, because anything, and especially now that reality is becoming more and more virtual, anything can be questioned. Is it Mm -hmm. fake? Is it AI is now becoming more and more mm. question. Is it like a deep fake? Yeah. Like, and so yeah. we have, we have this uh, quite scary actually uh, split in culture, where where we seem to be completely blind to our own flaws, but very much aware of the flaws of the other side. Oh yeah, and and from your perspective, you know that for me. I, I'm quite new to the more Christian worldview. Um, mm-hmm. I'm developing a much closer relationship to Jesus Christ lately. But, you know, as I told mm-hmm. you, I was in the East for, for many mm-hmm. years, but I'm coming mm-hmm. back home. And when when I see what's happening, for me, that has certain implications because the division and the lying that is happening, it's like it, it, it resonates with certain things that I read about in the Bible. And I, I just mm-hmm. want to know from the perspective of somebody so deeply immersed in, in the Christian uh, doctrine and, you know, the mm-hmm. beliefs, uh, is there something happening now of a particular significance spiritually that we're going through some kind of challenge that is some kind of purification or... Uh, or, or is it is it just the political drama? Like, uh, what? How do um, you see it? I personally, and this is pure personal opinion, I tend to be rather cool about uh, reading into contemporary events some sort of apocalyptic or biblical significance right. about things, only because I remember um, I came to ortho- orthodoxy about nearly 40 years ago, uh, and those were the bad old communist days. Mm. And the refugees in Western Europe and America who had fled the Russian Revolution, many of them were still alive. I knew some of them personally. I knew officers from the White Army, you know, that fled in the face yeah. of the Bolshevik Revolution. Yes. Um, wow. And, you know, there were certain elements there who saw, oh, communism is the Antichrist. Uh, you know, these are the last days, you know, the imminent return of Christ is here, whatnot. And mm. uh, while it was certainly anti-Christian and it was, it was a terrible, horrible, it was unspeakable experience for the Christians living under communism, mm. it wasn't the end of the world. And so I think every generation sort of tends to want to absolutize, ah, this is it. It's the, it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They finally come over the hill. And I, I don't know that that's the case. Christ says in the gospel, it says there will always be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and all kinds of catastrophes. The end is not yet. 
Um, I think that doesn't mean that we don't have to, you know, maintain some resilience in the face of evil. I think we need to stand up to it, certainly. And I think there are times when it is more difficult to be a man or a woman of faith. Mm-hmm. And I think those times are now. Right. But, you know, even even then, when I, you know, when I think about that, I remember uh, there was a very famous Catholic bishop by the name of Fulton Sheen. He was quite popular mm-hmm. even on television in America in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, he was one of the first great religious media personalities. Mm. Uh, and he said Sheen. Sheen, S-H-E-E-N. You can hear audio recordings okay. of him. In a marvelous voice. I, I wish I could speak like the man. His oratorical skills were incredible. I, mm. I just love him. It was a great one for storytelling, too. And I remember he gave a retreat, I think, in Ireland in 1975. And he said, in 1975, we are at the end of Christendom. He says, not Christianity, Christendom. What is Christendom? Christendom is society based on the gospel ethic that is finished. And it's marvelous. He says, when he was a boy, and I remember when I was a boy, you could leave your bicycle laying on your front lawn. And no no one thought about it. You know, your car doors were left unlocked. You didn't lock your house. Because no one was going to go in. No one was going to bother your things. You can't do that anymore. You know, the world is a different place. It now costs something more to be a person of faith. Mm. And I think that's simply the way that it is now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know that the church serves her God well or serves her people well if the church takes sides in the political and social controversies of our day. If I could riff for just for just a moment, if you look in St. Luke's Gospel, the account of the crucifixion, um, it says that Jesus was crucified. When he dies on the cross, the centurion who's there by him says, truly this was a righteous man. And the crowd that was howling for his death, it says, went away beating their breasts. Okay, so, you, so he was the victim of mob violence. Yeah. Okay. If you remember your René Girard and the whole scapegoat theory and all, this is what's playing out here. They knew Christ had to be evil. If we just kill this man, everything will be right in the world. And the centurion says, no, this was not a bad guy. This was a good guy. And the people say, oh, damn it. We wanted it to, We wanted him to be the bad guy so we could feel good about ourselves. And they go away and say, oh, that didn't work. So they go away in faith, in, in sorrow. But it says that his mother and the other disciples stood at a distance watching these things. So I think that maybe the role of people of faith is not to take direct part in the controversies of our day, but to stand a little apart, to be a witness to them, and to show everybody involved, both sides, that there is a third option that does not involve conflict, that does not involve name-calling, that does not involve taking sides, Mm. but rather like, you know, Moore's understanding of his archetypes were neither this way too much or that way too little but the mature expression of it yeah. transcends which is similar to the aristotelian aristotle yes aristotelian. is that how you say it i think yeah, so. aristotelian yes yeah. yes well it transcends it and i think that people of faith can do that and we can stand apart from the contrast of our day bear witness to something that is that is true that's higher that's conciliatory that makes room that actually has room for everybody and where we can find a common humanity that is deeper than the momentary things that divide us. That's beautiful. Okay.
Right, I, I'll get I'll, okay. Done preaching. I'll get off that. That so much. Yeah. Stuff. Well, I appreciate I think that. that. That may be a way forward. It's a message of reconciliation, forgiveness, yeah. understanding. Yeah, especially you know when we when we think of you know a, a time when part of Europe is at war right now, so it comes a little, maybe a little closer to us. And yes, America is involved in that and all. And like God, America tends to be involved in all the wars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it doesn't <but> disappear. <laughs> it never, yeah, it never seems to disappear. Our fingers are all over all of that. Mm. Um, but how can we stand apart from that? Can can we still love our country and yet call it to repentance? Mm. Uh, I think we can. And it's a difficult place, and it requires a, a creativity and maybe a patience um, and maybe a lot of prayer and meditation, too. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but there is a way forward. It's not easy, but we can do it. And I think it's ultimately, it's ultimately the more mature and, and the more hopeful way that, again, benefits everybody. Mm. And so, again, you know, that's sort of very traditional Christian understanding brought into the contemporary situation and can point forward and not just backwards. Great. I think there will, again, there is still a, a persistent message, a perennial philosophy, you know, if you want to put it in philosophical terms, that is always evergreen mm. and can still be beneficial to us if we'll pay attention to it. With you now pointing forwards, Father Michael, um, let's spend a little bit of time imagining what the role of men and masculinity is going forwards and what will it take for us to thrive as men in this culture and in these complex times uh, in the years to come do you see do you see anything from the work that you're doing with these young men that's relevant do you have any reflections that we could take with us into this conversation about where we're going Yeah, I, I, I have a few. I have a few insights. Yeah, um, a lot of what I'm seeing in the young men is a genuine desire to grow up. Mm. I, I could tell a little story when I was um, when I was uh, uh, at that men's retreat with Ryan Mickler in Maine last October. Uh, I talked with a businessman who had just hired a 25 year old man right out of college, well skilled, well qualified for the job. And I, I'm sure it's similar in Europe. When you're hired for a job, you get, you know, a sheet of paper with all the stuff you have to fill out so the government can take taxes out of your salary. And, you know, at least in America where we buy health insurance, here's the health insurance form. So you fill this out. And here's the personal information form for the human resources department. And here's the paperwork for this. Here's the paperwork for that. And he gave him the stack of the usual stuff that all of us, you know, deal with every time we get a job. And the young man came back the next day and he had filled in his name on the forms and that was all. And he said, I, I don't know what to do with all of this. And th this is the line. I just started adulting a year ago. Now, adult is not a verb in English or it didn't used to be a verb in English, but apparently it has now become a verb because I knew immediately what he was saying. And there's an aspect of growing into maturity that I'm sure it's not just young men, it's young women as well. Everyone is having trouble with. There is an overextended adolescence and a long period of time of irresponsibility or lessened responsibility that uh, is not serving anybody well. Mm. And I think the way forward is to help everybody grow up 
And by growing up, I mean learning to shoulder responsibility for their own lives, to quit blaming, uh, quit the victimhood, just you know, just stop being victims all over. Just, just cut that out completely. And assume responsibility for our own lives so that we can then, excuse me, as I've said before, we can then live lives that are in service to and add value to everyone who's around us. Lives that have purpose and meaning because they're given to something larger than our own self-gratification and our own self-aggrandizement. And that's where real meaning and purpose and deep satisfaction comes from. So I think the more that we can help people become autonomous, responsible, mature, and other-focused, mm. I think society, I think, will probably take care of itself. Mm. It's too big for me to, you know, to say much about. But in every case where I have helped young men to become more autonomous, more self-directed, shoulder more responsibility, they flourished and they've been happy and you know they've, they've they've gone on to settle down and then oddly enough they actually find a wife you know after they've been <laughs> looking for years so you know when they finally grow up and become adults wow a, a woman actually wants to take a second look at them who mm. knew you know and so things begin to happen mm -hmm. and they tend to settle down and start families and go to church on sunday and you know contribute to the world and, and add value through their jobs and become they're, they're content mm. and i think kind of that's the way forward uh so anything we can do in men's work to help men sort of do that especially to shoulder more responsibility and you know if you if you see that there's something that needs doing and you don't have the skills you need to do shoulder as much responsibility as you can get training for the rest and i i, I actually i think that comes right out of one of moore's books that might be at that might be in the the volume um, 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 uh, the, the, uh, on the king. It's either in the magician or the king, you know, the individual mm. volume. So that's in the mm. back of that. Shoulder as much responsibility as you can. Get training for the rest. Right. And so I think that's kind of where my calling is. That's where my own uh, beginning coaching work I think is is going to is going to head. Mm. Is helping younger men to grow up, to grow in their own personal autonomy. Uh, to take their attention off themselves and show them that greater satisfaction and meaning and purpose is found when you serve something bigger than yourself. This and, this feels like the father, you know, speaking. This is like oh, a father. This is a father energy, and I'm not speaking only about you in a religious sense, but the dad. You know, the dad that mm -hmm. maybe has abdicated some of his responsibility. I'm, maybe. I, as you know, I'm I'm about to become dad, uh, a father for the first time myself, and I think it's it's one of those things that I've heard. This is also something that I believe Robert Bly mentioned back in the days that that father father is is not just like a, a role in the family system. It's also like a substance, like salt. And that we mm. don't have enough of it in our culture. And so the boys particularly, but also the girls, they miss it. They yeah. miss the sense that there is something that is bigger than myself that I'm being called forth into. Yes. And if nobody holds that bar for me, I'm going to be obsessively focused on my own gratification and thus just fail to become a valuable contribution to society. I think you're right. I, I like the way you say that. 
Mm. And I, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right in, in it. And I don't know if yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to point fingers. Uh, I get a lot of personal messages on my social media from right. young men who appreciate the things that I say. And so many of them on your say, Telegram profile where you've started to really rock it lately. Oh, no, I mean, oh, I mean, Instagram. Insta Instagram, yes, I'm I'm doing pretty well on Instagram, and God yeah. help me, TikTok. I was. Are you on TikTok? I'm, I'm on TikTok. Yes, I'm. I'm sorry to say, I, I was told I need mean, there myself, Michael. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like the it. same stuff. On, it's the same stuff on Instagram and TikTok. Yeah, it's the same thing, but TikTok allows for organic growth. So I have twenty eight thousand followers on TikTok. No way, um, that's great. So a lot more yeah, engagement uh, on TikTok, right? Huge, huge following in Africa of yeah. all places. Wow! But yeah, but men are finding it are finding it helpful. It's hard to get organic growth on Instagram, but I'm, I'm building mm -hmm. slowly there. That's mainly where my audience is, but they are migrating to TikTok. So my business mm -hmm. coach told me get into TikTok now, so you're on right. the ground floor, so that when your clientele moves over there, you are already established, right. and they will find you. So that's the only reason I'm there. Yeah. Personally, it. I think TikTok is Sodom and Gomorrah, and I have a hard time uh, being yeah. on there myself. But anyway, but I get personal messages from from all these men all over the world. They said, "I didn't have a dad. My dad, you know, I was raised by a single mother, or dad was absent, or he was gone to work all the time. I never, I never, I had a father, but I never knew him." Mm. And there is, you're right, there is a real absence. And Robert Bly talked about the father wound, yes. you know, 30, 40 years ago. It's not like it's a, it's not like it's a new thing. There is nothing new under the sun. No, no absolutely not. You know, it, Bly in 1990 when he wrote Iron John, you look at the very first pages, the introduction, page like four and five. He says, you know, I go to these gatherings. He was doing these things in the 70s, these men's gatherings. He says, I see around me a lot of what I would call soft males. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're not interested in hurting the planet. You know, they're all nice and they're you know you know sensitive to the feelings of their partners and all, but they don't have any energy. They don't there's have like the, drunk, the passion, the fire. Yeah, it's there's nothing there. Flat. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and you know, thirty years later, we call them soy boys or <laughs> yes. beta males, or yeah. you know, we have a bunch of new names for them. It's exactly the same thing. Nothing has changed. Mm. How is it? Nothing has changed in thirty years. Mm. You know. It's it's uh, Mike, you know in some respects it's you know, it's, it's it can be very frustrating you know so you want the world to be better somehow but yeah I, I think it just says that the the work continues and we have to slog through it and God willing you know like yourself you know younger generation of men are willing to step up and to say hey there is a way out we don't have to be like this yes uh, we can make the world a better place and to hold out some hope you know and point a way forward even if we're not there ourselves we can say I may not have all the answers and I'm not there but I it's that away. So mm. let's go together and let's go that away and see if we can't find it. Great. I have two more questions for you before sure. we wrap up. First thing I want to know, what do you love about being a man? What do I love about being a man? Hmm. I, I, um, how do I put this delicately? <laughs> uh, I love the fact that I have a drive and an energy to penetrate the world. Um, that uh, that there is an assertiveness 
that I found that's not aggression and not passivity, but it's certainly in later years, I found how to be appropriately assertive uh, to have impact uh, in ways that I didn't previously, that there is, there is a masculine way of, of, of loving other people, certainly my sons. I have a fantastic relationship with my two boys. Mm. And I'm, I, I, I just love them to pieces. And every time we're together, it is fantastic. Uh, the fact that I can be their dad and that they come to me and are open with me about things uh, that I was never comfortable talking to my stepfather about, that I can be a resource to them, uh, that I can be not only a physical father uh, to my boys, a husband, a husband to my wife, that I can be a spiritual father to a large congregation and now through social media to a lot of other young men and provide a kind of guidance and an encouragement uh, is deeply gratifying to me. So I think those are the ways that I really enjoy being a man. Uh, I know women have a different mode of being and a different way of doing that, but I really, really, especially in the last few years, mm -hmm. I've really sort of grown into an appreciation for uh, the masculine mode of doing this kind of work. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And nothing gives me as much excitement or joy. I, I, I could have conversations like this all day long and never grow tired of it. I, I, think, I think in some of the, some of the conversations, I, I get a little lively. I apologize if I'm, but, uh, uh, you see, it moves me. Nothing, nothing moves me in the same way mm. as doing this kind of work. And I'm going to now give you a room full of men. And you get to give them one piece of advice, one piece of instruction that they will have 100% perfect implementation of. What would you tell them to do in order to improve their lives? Stop waiting. Go for it. Yeah, I don't believe entirely the message, just follow your dreams. But somewhere in your life, you have to make a place for them. Uh, maybe you need to keep a day job to put food on the table, but somewhere you have got to include following your dreams. One of the things I have not mentioned, but one of the deep reasons why I am doing men's work is because I live with a deep sense of regret for decades that I wasted because I was afraid to act and I didn't have good guidance on how to act. When I finally figured out I need to go in a direction, I could not find guidance or direction or help. And so I wasted a huge amount of time and I come to my gray hair and I find that I have a huge amount of regret. Go and try, do it. You might fail. Failure is bitter, but regret is 10 times worse. And if I could spare younger men the kind of regret that I live with because I was afraid to act when I was younger, it, it, you know, it, it would be of immense, it, it mean a lot to me if I could help that. I, I, would, I would be deeply gratified mm. to know that someone went out and said, you know, yeah, I want to start that side hustle. Yeah, I really want to be a musician. Okay, yeah, maybe I have to wait tables or go to college, but, you know, in my spare time, I'm still going to practice my guitar. You know, or whatever, whatever it may happen to be, but you need to find a time in your life because most men, most men, they take their childish dreams. They put them on the shelf in the closet when they have to grow up and go to school or get a job or whatnot. And then they, it comes back to haunt us in midlife. And even then men don't deal with them well. And you live lives. Oh, I always wanted to do that. Oh, why didn't I travel when I had the chance? 
uh, you know, or I, I always wanted to write poetry and, you know, I, I never did. And, you know, I, I love poetry to this day, but it never had a place in my life. And it, it may sound small to someone else unless poetry is a great passion of yours. You know, I, I saw <laughs> for myself, you mentioned, we haven't talked at all about bodybuilding. I'll maybe end with that. You know, I, in, in America, we have this, this comic books, this dates me. And in the back of the comic books, there was these ads uh, for Charles Atlas. He had this little incipient bodybuilding program back then. But I saw him in the back of the comic book and I said, I want to look like that. And with muscles and all, and, you know, maybe it goes back to my father's death that maybe I wanted to be strong so I wouldn't die young like my father had. Mm. You know, I, I don't know. There's probably deep reasons for it. But I always wanted to say, I want to look like that. And I was intimidated by it and I was scared to do it. And I wanted to get in shape when I was 20, 30, 40, and 50. And I finally said to my wife when I was 53, I said, I regret not doing this my whole life. I want to regret something else when I'm 60 years old, but I don't want to regret this. And that's when I got serious in the gym. I was 53 years old. Uh, and it was one of the best things I ever did for myself. And that's when I realized that really, you know, your, your dreams are important. And you need to find a place. I did not quit my day job to be a bodybuilder, no. But I get to the gym every single day. And once or twice a year, I, some, I still go to, a, um, you will enter a competition like I will twice this year and see if even I, at my advanced age, uh, can win a pro card uh, in the, we call it Grand Masters, but it's really the geezer category, you know. So I get to stand on stage with other old men and we'll strut our stuff and it will be It's okay. an inspiring story to end on, Michael, to to decide at the at the age of fifty-three that I'm gonna be a bodybuilder and then carrying sure. through on that and actually winning competitions. Yeah, actually I have. I've I've won five out of the eleven contests I've been in. I mean so it's I've done okay. Yeah, that's an inspiring story to end on. Thank you for that. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, as you said, mostly right now on Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, the handle I use is average to alpha. That's AVG, numeral two, A-L-P-H-A, average to alpha. Uh, it's the same material on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, I have a YouTube channel with the same, with the same handle. Uh, YouTube should be increasing in, in uh, lots more posting. I hope in the next couple of months, that's the place where I'm going to put more long form content where I lay out my work on the four virtues, on the problems that young men are facing, on ways forward, uh, how to improve your life, just everything. That should be some really good content uh, that'll be coming out there soon. And I am just now starting um, my website, so which will also be AVG, numeral two alpha, average to alpha.com. I'll have a landing page and some stuff up. I hope that'll be up in the next few weeks. Great. Uh, so yeah, just look up that one handle and you'll you'll find me. So if you want to uh, if you want to check out that website, those of you men who are watching, you may need to wait a week or two after this podcast has been published, but it'll be there soon enough by the sounds of it. And it I'm sure you will communicate this on Instagram. So. Oh yeah, and now I have even more incentive to finish getting the thing written and put up. So Beautiful. I appreciate that. Father Michael Butler, it's been a great pleasure to have you as a guest on Wayshowers. I look forward to seeing you again in the next episode. Thank you.
Thank you for thank you. It's always it's always a joy. I've always appreciated the work that that you've done. I was pleased to have met you. What was it? Three years ago at the European Men's Gathering. I, I guess it was, and I, I think it must I've have been. Yeah. Yes, um, August year before last, so two and a half years, something like that. Mm. You do good work, man. Keep it up. Thank the world you. needs you as well. men. Men need more voices like what you're doing. And I think so, you know the men who those of you have been watching to to hear the blessings and the compassion and the love, but also the challenge of a man who does bring the kind of father energy that you bring, I think it's just so, so helpful and quite rare actually in the culture that we have now. So don't yes. hesitate to reach out to him if some of this has inspired you. Did you want to say one more thing before we wrap up? No, I think we're good. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially on Instagram, that's the place to get a direct message to me. I, I do check those and I, I do respond as best I'm able. So, right. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be of service if I can mm. um, in whatever way I can. So there it is. And, um, you know, it's it's maybe an unorthodox foible, but, uh, you know, we're always asking forgiveness for anything. But, you know, I hope I've said things that are beneficial and forgive me if I've caused any offense. I didn't set out intentionally to cause anybody offense. So forgive me if I did. Great. Thanks for joining us today. I'll see you next Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Father Michael Butler as much as I did. If you are interested in checking out more of his work, do not hesitate to use one of the links to either TikTok or Instagram. You can see them on the screen right now. Michael's platforms are inspired. He posts pretty much every day and he brings out a cohesive message on men and masculinity, bringing, of course, from his cardinal masculine virtues from way back as explored in this conversation and many other diverse topics. So do check those out. If you enjoy this conversation, don't hesitate to share it with your friends to let them also have the benefit of Father Michael's perspectives. Also, if you are watching on YouTube, I obviously welcome a like to support the YouTube algorithm. And also, if you want more content like this in the future, then subscribe to the channel. This has been Ivan Figinska-Schellum, men's coach and Reclaim Me in a Throne founder. I hope you have a great day and that you will join us in the next Way Showers podcast episode coming soon.